that I had a thousand voices to praise my God with thousand tongues. My heart, which in the Lord rejoices, would then proclaim in grateful songs what great things God hath done for me. Amen. Your fellow servants of our truly awesome, omnipotent, all-powerful God. Both our Christian faith and our God are under attack. And you would be hard-pressed to find anything more obviously destined to failure. God himself founded the Christian religion, and God himself promised that the very gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is important for Christians to remember, for you and me to remember when the opposition seems so overwhelming, when the voices raised in derision of the Christian religion, first of all, seem to shout in unison that the Christian religion, the time for it is gone and past, and that we've moved on to something new. It's important for us to remember when the, the simple morality of our faith seems to be unraveling before our eyes. The only thing I could think of that's more destined, obviously destined to failure, than our society and Satan's war against the Christian religion is his war against our God, their God. Because man cannot oppose God and succeed. He can succeed in destroying himself eternally in hell, but he cannot succeed against God. We sang about it in our psalm for this morning. Why did they struggle against God? Why did they say, let us cut the cords that bind him to us? In other words, why would they ever imagine they, they can somehow demote God, push him from their lives successfully and get away with it? And what do the psalmist say? God sits in his heaven and laughs. He holds them in derision. What utter foolishness. Nothing. No one can ever, will ever succeed in opposing their creator, God. And yet, at times it sort of feels like that, doesn't it? Doesn't it feel at times like we're losing, like God is losing? That the forces of evil are so powerful and the walls seem to be closing in on us that somehow they seem to be winning. Rest assured, they are not. Part of the problem is we tend to hear the voices that shout the loudest. And the forces of evil have always been loudmouth. They've always been what the rest of the world champions as truth. So it's always what's going to be shouted in the ears of God's people. That doesn't make it true. That doesn't mean they're succeeding. I mean, think of it this way. Even if the entire world would shout in unison, the sun rises in the west and sets in the east, it doesn't make it true. If even whole choruses shout in unison that God is dead 
and that the time of the Christian religion has passed and that we've moved on to something new, that doesn't make it any less ridiculous. It tells us that they've separated themselves from their God. They have that terrible power. But it says nothing about the ongoing power and wisdom of our God. Now, all of this is really not anything new. A defiant segment of every society has always struggled to cast off God, to pretend that God not only does not, or either does not exist at all, or that he has limited or no power at all. And now we hear that man created God. There's always been those. And they've always failed. Utterly, catastrophically failed. And they will have to face their God on Judgment Day. And every knee will bow. So what we're really dealing with in all of this is not so much fact as it is emotion, perception, opinion. And so our goal this morning is to separate perception from fact as God revealed it to us. And our goal is to come to reappreciate, re-understand, re-grasp, pick a word, both the wisdom and the power of our God. And we'll see that that's not as easy always as it might seem. The text that will form the foundation of our study is found in Isaiah's book, the 55th chapter, beginning there with the 6th verse. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. This is God's word in humble acknowledgement, not only of the source of these words, God himself, but in their ongoing power in our lives. So we pray, sanctify us by your truth, O Lord. Your word is truth. Amen. Just as you are no doubt aware that both history and art require a certain distance to fully grasp and appreciate them. Now you get that, just common sense. If you walk right up to an oil painting, all you see are some weird kind of lines, and it's only when you back up that you see the picture. Same thing with history. When you're too close to history, and, and when you're trying to, for example, explain 
in a larger view of, of what's happening, you have to have some distance to see the whole picture. The same thing is true about God and his power in our lives. We get too close in the day-to-day -day things and we lose sight of, we can't grasp the bigger picture of it all. This is what we're going to try to do this morning, is to back up a little bit and, and take a broader view of history and God's history of dealings with mankind and gain a new perspective and a new appreciation for his wisdom and power. Atheistic historians have long held and taught that man created God. And they claim to be able to see that because of the passage of time and what they see as the evolution of religion. In other words, they see early man creating God and asking him to give them things like good crops and weather and healthy children and things like that. And then that, they believe, evolved into a more complex religion. And then it was the Jews, they say, that first came up with the idea of one God and then along came the disciples and this man named Jesus, and that was the beginning of the Christian faith. And then others came, Buddha, Confucius, and Joseph Smith, and the Mormon religion, and Muhammad, and Islam. And See, that's this ongoing evolution of religion, and now they say we're just evolving past that silliness, and we're coming to some new truth, some new understanding. Well, let's look at that a little bit. Part of the problem with these secular religious historians is that they can't find any mention of Christianity prior to about 50 AD. And we read that in the book of Acts that the people that followed Jesus were first called Christians in Antioch. It was about 50 AD. So they say, see, new religion. It's such nonsense. You don't even know where to begin. The Christian religion didn't start with the Christians, didn't even start with Jesus and his coming into our world and his death on the cross. The Christian religion started with Adam and Eve in the garden when God made that promise to send the Messiah, he would crush the serpent's head. And yet he didn't name him. It didn't name him, did it? It didn't say, and his name shall be called Jesus Christ. So obviously they couldn't be called Christians because Christ Jesus hadn't yet been named. That's why the word appears in 50 AD about, but they were nonetheless, Adam and Eve were Christian because they believed in that promise that Jesus Christ, who would be named later, would be sent. Same thing with Abraham, who is, by the way, the focal point of the three major world religions. The Jews claim him, rightly, as the beginner of the Jewish nation, the Islam claims him as the beginner of Islam because one of his children was the forefather of those who, for the most part, claim Islam. And yet, obviously, Abraham was also Christian. He believed God's promise when God said to him, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. There's only one seed that could bless all nations of the earth, and that's Jesus yet unnamed, but we read in the New Testament, it was that faith in that promise that saved Abraham. Abraham was a Christian. 
Secular historians also believe the silly notion that since God doesn't talk to people today, other than psychotic people, and more realistically, because God doesn't speak audibly to them, therefore God never spoke to anyone, and therefore certain men just made up religion. And therefore, in their view, seeing through this manufactured God, we've moved beyond, and therefore God doesn't exist, let alone does he have any power. Some of the problems with all of this are obvious to us. We turn to God's word and we read, God created the heavens and the earth, God is eternal, God is omnipotent, God is omniscient, and we, we can use that to combat the obvious nonsense, but there are some threats here that aren't as obvious. And we want to identify those, especially this morning, the threats that sort of can tend to fly under our, under our radar. For guidance, we turn again to these words from our text. Powerful, important words revealing the bedrock that, that underpins, undergirds our understanding of our God. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And we need to just stop and hear those words and understand them. The basic message here is that far from creating God, we cannot fully grasp him. We can't wrap our arms around him mentally and encompass all that is God. We, we just, he, he reveals some things to us, but it's so foolish to imagine that we can grasp him. It's, it's the worm imagining that he can comprehend the fisherman or the ant believing that he can comprehend the universe in which he exists. We're not capable of fully grasping God. His thoughts, his ways are infinitely above ours. So we, we step back and we look at that and we acknowledge that that's true. Our God is greater. We can't understand everything about our God. And we hear then the psalmist say, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And then we say, okay, is that it? Is that all there is to the Christian religion? You can't fully understand your God, so don't even try? Of course not. We are to cling to and be convinced of and trust in what he has revealed to us about himself. We are capable of that because God has revealed it to us. And he knows the level of, under, of our understanding. He knows what we are capable of grasping. So God tells us that he's eternal. And we can mostly grasp that. We don't have any familiarity with what it's like to exist in timelessness. But we can see God had no beginning, has no end. He'd always existed. And from that, we can gain other truth. Well, the evolutionists can't explain how life began, but we can. This God who had no beginning or end created life. He told us that. We can grasp some things about our God. 
So you remember that passage we just mentioned from the psalm, Be still and know that I am God? Here's the problem with reading just part of Scripture and not reading more. We have to go to the end of that psalm to get the balance that God wants us to have and to gain the comfort and understanding he wants us to possess. The end of the psalm says, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. So you take those two together, we are supposed to be still and know that he is God. He's infinitely greater than we are, but also we're supposed to know that he is with us. That he is right here, and he lives within us, his Holy Spirit does. And those two thoughts combined are, are not just informative, they're awesome. And we could spend a lifetime thinking about, meditating on what they mean. So then some will ask, we'll ask ourselves, how, what are we supposed to do with this? How are we supposed to grasp this apparent paradox that God is infinitely greater than our understanding and yet he's right here with us. He lives in us. He promised to be here with us when just two or three are gathered in his name. What do we do with that? Part of the challenge here is that we live in a time when God does not whisper new things into the ears of his prophets. Now, this isn't unusual, by the way. Uh, we read in the Bible that there were times, for example, just before Samuel, we read there that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. So there were periods in history where God did not speak directly to his people. But now it's different, isn't it? And what makes now different? All of this other direct revelation came before and in connection with Jesus Christ, that promised Messiah. And now that Jesus has come, and now that God has given us his word, complete, full, absolutely everything we need to be saved, he's revealed to us in his holy, unchangeable word. Now, to me, that's a tremendous comfort. I thank God that we do not have continuing, new, ongoing revelation. In other words, God doesn't speak to popes or councils or prophets or to individuals through dreams. That's how new, false religions are created. Somebody has a dream. God spoke to me. Here's a new religion. People that believe in that immediate ongoing revelation, they don't know from one week to the next what they believe because they may go to church or synagogue or wherever they go and their new religious leader may say, hey, got some new truth last night, here's what we believe now. What a horrible way to have to live. Never sure of the truth, never sure of, well, if the world ends and judgment day comes, I, I, I hope we end it on the right note that we now have it right because last week it was a little different. Isn't it a blessing that our God gave us his word? Perfect, holy, complete, unchangeable. And then at the very end said, don't add to this word. Don't take away from it. We sang, we always sing in this liturgy after we hear God's word. These words are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. We have what we need. 
The danger, and we always have to look at what's Satan's angle? Where's the danger here? What's he trying to do? The danger is here that we come to doubt God's power among us today because we fail to identify the obvious evidence of his presence among us. In other words, we develop in our minds what God must do to prove his power, what God must do to prove that he's here with us. And you see what that is? That's elevating ourselves to the level of God when God says, my thoughts are infinitely higher than your thoughts. Don't try to do that, but we do. We elevate ourselves and we get an idea of what must happen, what God must do to prove that he's here with us, that he's living and active. Fill in the blank in your own lives. I have a sickness. And if God heals this, I will believe that he is with me and still powerful today. And if not, well, there's a certain amount of doubt in my heart. Really? You're going to pretend to demand of God that he prove himself, his existence, his power, according to your standards. So we back up a step. Do you believe that God is all-powerful? Well, let me ask this way. Do you believe God himself? Because here's what our text said. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish what I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Jesus himself, do you believe him? In the New Testament, he said, For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We hear these things, and we believe they're true as his children, but we tend to skim over them lightly instead of dig down into them. And what we fail to understand is when we force God to try to prove his power in our lives according to our ideas, that's when we run into trouble. That's when we drift into oncoming traffic, isn't it? Because, well, God, you said your word would accomplish what you please, but here's what you should please. You should do this. You should solve my financial worries. You should heal me. You should. God says, I am infinitely greater. You can't know the big picture. You can't know everything that I know. So stay in your lane. Be still and know that I am God. But know that I am with you and recognize my power. And where do we find that power? And here's where we make the greatest mistake today. We imagine because we want him to do this thing for us, we miss that power, just as the Jews missed Jesus when he stood right before them. And that power, according to God's word, is that word. And do you ever stop to think that this power and wisdom of God, he is given to us. We wield it. We use it. We employ it every time 
we bring that word of God into our own lives or into the lives of our neighbor. That's the power of God. It's still here. We just need to recognize what it is and where it is. Because God himself, Jesus said, the word of God is living and powerful. And then we need to avoid that nonsense of reading something like our text and saying, um, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, it shall accomplish that which I purpose. And there's where we need to shut our mouth, acknowledge that God is greater than me, and say, I don't know what your purpose is in every sense, every occasion, in every example. I don't know and I can't know, but I trust you. I trust that your word has the power to accomplish because you told me it's so. And I trust your wisdom, which is infinitely greater than my own. And that's such a blissful comfort to be God's little child and trust him that he is your God and he knows better than you do. It's Jesus himself who said, all power has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Do you trust that? Of course you do. But learn how we're supposed to trust that. How we're supposed to believe that. What difference is supposed to make in our lives? To believe that through his word, that's where he wields his power today. Not in new and different revelation, but in that word of God that he's given us. Now, some hear that and say, oh, you're, you're talking about law and gospel and stuff like that, right? Could you identify for me what is more important than the salvation of a human soul? What on earth could be more important than those living souls that must spend an eternity in either heaven or in hell? Could you imagine a better place? To wield the power of God? No. So God gave us that power in his word, and he gave us simple instructions that even we can understand and follow. Go and make disciples of all nations. How do we do that, Lord? Baptize them and teach them all things that I have commanded you. It's not infinitely above us. He reduced it to something so simple even I can understand. I can know. This is my life. This is my purpose. This is his great commission for me. And and that message is not complex because he knows what we're capable of. And so he made it painfully simple. You sin, and you could not pay for your sins. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every human being knows that when they're honest. Even those who don't believe there's a God and no such thing as sin, their consciences still bother them. That's our doorway in when we talk to them. They know. Why do you think they shout so loudly that the sin that they're promoting is acceptable? Because they don't believe it. You've sinned. We've all sinned. We could not pay for the first of our sins So here's what God did. As a demonstration of his power, he sent his son into the world. His eternal son took on human 
nature, took that into his divine nature, set aside the full use of his divine power. He sent him to earth. He lived a perfect life. And then God the Father placed on him the iniquity of us all. They, he piled all of the world's sin on his son. Well, that makes no sense to us. So there, too, we need to just let God be God and dictate that truth because it makes no sense to us that the one sinless man would have to pay for all the sins. The one man who deserved no punishment would be punished for those who all deserve eternal punishment in hell. But that was God's plan. He sent his son. His son lived a sinless life. Therefore, he was able to offer that sinless sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. And God looked at his son and what he did and the payment he made and said, paid in full the sins of the world. This same Isaiah said, though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white. How are they white? God didn't overlook sin. He punished it. Every sin requires punishment. God just visited the punishment that we deserve on his son required nothing that we needed to provide. Even gave us the ability to believe that it's true. That's power. There is no greater power. No one could convince you of something against your will. And yet God, through the power of that word that we've been called to just bring into the lives of our neighbor as simply as we can, that power turns someone from eternal destruction in hell to eternal life in heaven. And that same power of that word sustains your faith, my faith, everyone who's been brought to faith. We need that. Recognize the power of our God has not diminished. Recognize it where it is. And for the love of your soul, make use of that. And for the love of the soul of your neighbor, Bring that power to bear in his life. And then let your omnipotent, loving, merciful God do what he alone can do to work through that word to rescue eternally that soul. Amen.